Hi, my name is Dean Kirpywhite, and my definition of relentless is the persistent pursuit of a desired outcome, usually driven by a primary emotion. On this episode, I am so happy to have Dean Kirpywhite, who is the president of Union Gospel Mission out in Vancouver, British Columbia. We talk about many things when it comes to assisting the homeless, in particular, the relentless pursuit of compassion and what that could mean for you and for me in our lives. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Relentless Podcast. My name is Kyle Dubay, and I'm really happy that you're here for today's episode. Uh, on today's episode, we're going to talk to a, a dear friend of mine named Dean Kirby White, and Dean is the president of, uh, of a place called UGM, Union Gospel Ministries in, in Vancouver, British Columbia. And we're going to talk about the importance of, of working with the homeless and what I'm going to call uh, this kind of relentless pursuit of compassion when it comes to the homeless. So, Dean, welcome to the Relentless Podcast. Thanks for having me, Kyle. You are a dear friend. I, uh, we are dear friends. Just so everybody knows, Dean and I have known each other for, I think, 25 years or so. Uh, it's been a long time. Um, I think I was an usher at your wedding, actually. If I'm You were. It's over 25 because I think we both got married 26 years ago. 26 years ago. So we're coming up on, so it's been about almost 27 years. Um, I was an incredible usher. Um, I ushered people to their seats. Just, it was almost a gift that I gave you to, to be part of your yeah. And I wasn't involved in your wedding at all. So really it was one side. No, no. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. Um, the reason I was, I was is because I, I've known uh, Dean's wife for longer than that, probably 30, 35 years. We went to junior high and high school together, but that's not what this podcast is about. This podcast uh, today is about um, the work that Dean does. Uh, Dean, I'm just going to maybe give a little bit of your history, uh, not to take away your thunder, but essentially you you are from the, the you're from Alberta. Um, I, I I I think orig- originally Edmonton. You you went into education as a young guy. You became a teacher. You then went into the ministry. You became a pastor. And you then worked uh, in the in Edmonton at a place called the Mustard Seed, uh, which is is uh, one of Edmonton's largest uh, organizations that that works with the homeless. Um, I don't even know what your title was there, but I'm just going to say you were the, the 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 big man on campus. You were the head honcho there for the Edmonton uh, services, and and there was layered services that you folks did there. And then just recently, um, about a half a year ago or so, you ended up uh, moving to Vancouver. And you're now with UGM. So maybe talk a little bit about that journey and 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 how you ended up getting to to UGM. Yeah, you know, I mean, it depends on how far back you want to go. But I think I think the more the more recent stuff, um, leaving a place that you've lived in basically for 50 years. Uh, Edmonton was home. I was born in Medicine Hat and got lots of roots in Southern Alberta. But you know, out of the 50 years I've been alive, uh, 46 of them were spent in in Edmonton. So uh, leaving a city that you know, that you love, that is home, that you've always called home, where the relationships are deep and meaningful, um, is is difficult. And yet I thought and knew that this was the right thing to do. And so um, when the recruitment process for Union Gospel Missions, a new president uh, started about a year ago right now. I was reached out to, and they asked me if I was interested in uh, pursuing this and applying, and I said I was, and uh, it was a a long kind of uh, process, I think probably about four, four and a half months, and uh, to the point where 
I was officially asked to uh, come to Vancouver and to be the new president of Union Gospel Mission. And there was a lot of reasons why I wanted to do it. Um, but I think a lot, you know, the primary reason from a, 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 you know, a pure motivation standpoint is, you know, East Hastings has got so much going on. Uh, it's so public as to what's going on. There's such a spotlight, uh, not just in Vancouver, but across Canada and even in North America about what's happening on East Hastings and the problems that are there. Um, the main building and the main operations of UGM sits right right on that, right on the edge of it. We are on East Hastings. Um, so all the tents, all the people, all the cardboard boxes that you see are like within a two-minute walk for me. And I feel that if we can change East Hastings, um, if we can make an impact there, uh, that would be the most profound thing that I could ever be a part of. And so that's why I came here is because I want to be a part of that change. It's uh, it's noble and it's 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 daunting, and it's it's huge to even think of that. Um, I haven't been to East Hastings in probably over a decade. I know that uh, even in that time, the issues have uh, gotten worse. It's it's the 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 homelessness um, numbers have risen. Dean, let's go back a little bit of you know when we want to talk about this relentless pursuit of compassion, which is what I'm kind of calling this podcast with you today. Why do you do this work? Why is this important to you? Like what, what, what clicked in your heart and your brain that made you think I want to do this? So a number of years ago, probably close to 25 years ago, actually, I just started off as a pastor of a church in St. Albert. Um, So, I mean, I'm in a suburb, you know, and I'm, I'm in a very sheltered suburb. Uh, with all due respect to those people that are in St. Albert, it's still a bit of a sheltered suburb. And I know this because I lived there up until six months ago. So, you know, it just, it is what it is. And it's a wonderful place to live. And we loved living there. And um, St. Albert, for a large degree, especially with my wife, Sasha, will always be home. But it was a bit sheltered. And so I had a gentleman who uh, became a friend and is now one of my closest friends that worked at the Mustard Seed at the time, and still does actually. And he said, I'd like you to come down for uh, a meal at the mustard seed and help serve supper one night. And I said, sure. So uh, new pastor, I think I I know I had the college and career group at the time. So a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds, I gathered about eight or 10 of them up. And I said, let's go serve a meal down at the mustard seed and we'll go serve some people that are homeless. And at this point, when I viewed people that were struggling with homelessness, struggling with addiction, that had come out of incarceration, all that kind of stuff, I really felt like... um, a lot of sense of not solidarity with them, but actually looking down upon them. Um, You know, your choices, your circumstances, um, who you are, you know, I'm, I'm in a better place than you are. And it was, and it was easy to kind of, you know, on one hand uh, have compassion, but I think the overriding emotion was really a a sense of pity, um, which sets us up as being in a place of power over the individual that's struggling. And so uh, I went down and my buddy grabbed me and he said, uh, you're not going to serve supper. And I mean, I think I had the corn ladle in my hand, right? Like I was ready to dish out corn. And he said, you're not going to do that. And I said, why? And he goes, I, I want you to sit and just talk to people. And I went, oh, okay, I can, I can do that. So I sit beside this individual and, uh, you know, ask him his name and he tells me his name and we're having a conversation and it's a, and it's a fine conversation. And then he says, what do you do for a living? And I say to him, well, I'm, I'm a pastor. 
And he went, oh, really? And I said, yeah. And, and he said, oh, can I tell you a little bit more about me? And I said, sure. And for the next half an hour, he had told me that he was in prison. And he told me why he was in prison. And, you know, after being in this work for a number of years, you become a little desensitized to these stories and that they don't shock you anymore. Um, what he told me would still be shocking for me to hear today as to why he was in prison. It was the some of the most heinous stuff I've ever heard. Um, what he did was awful. And I remember there was a moment for me where I looked at him and I felt that I had a choice in that moment to bring this person worth, dignity, and love, or to continue coming with him with judgment. And you can call it God, you can call it whatever you want to call it. Uh, like, you know, a Dr. Seuss story, my heart grew three or four times that day. Hmm. And I went, this person needs to, wants to change his life, wants to change his life patterns. And if someone like me can't sit with him and can't be in solidarity with him, then who's going to be? And that, that was the day I changed my perspective on that community. That was the moment I changed that perspective on my community. That, that grace had to flow um, for this person to have any hope at all of redeeming his life. So it's that interesting was, that you that, can, that yeah, that you can remember that moment. And, and, um, you know, I've talked about this a little bit too, you know, with the work that I do, uh, with you can use services. And, and then prior to that in my career, it's been with vulnerable people and it's been with vulnerable youth, uh, in particular. And for me, similar type situation, you and I've talked about that living in St. Albert, Alberta, Canada is it's a, it's quite an affluent community. Um, but when when I was growing up and probably into my late twenties in St. Albert, there there was there was homeless people, but it would have been not not very visible. Um, probably more like uh, uh, couch surfing things like that. But there was one homeless individual. His name was Louis, uh, and Louis was very visible. And you would know who Louis was, I think, if because you would have lived in St. Albert at that time. Yep. And Louis was all over St. Albert. Um, he would be here, he'd be there, he'd be everywhere. And, and people kind of knew who Louis was. Sometimes I saw people be mean to Louis. Um, I definitely know that Louis was judged, but I will say that I think for the most part, Louis was fairly accepted within the community. Louis was a really nice guy, but I didn't know this about Louis until one time I went into a convenience store and Louis was there and he wanted some money. I was about 18 and a half years old. I, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And I, Louis wanted some money. I said, no, but are you hungry? And so I went in, I, I, I bought him some pizza pops and uh, a, a big soda, a big pop. And then I had some as well. And we sat and we probably talked for an hour or two. And Louis just told me his life story. And it truly was an incredible life story. He also talked about, you know, he has opportunities to go and live with different people that are involved in his life and, and, you know, uh, foster parents that he stayed with for years as a kid and all that type of stuff, but he chose not to, but similar where he asked me, what do you want to do with your life? You know, what do you, what do you want to do as a career? What, where, you know, like it impacted me in such a huge way as I sat and built relationship with this man. And, and he literally was 
pouring assets into my life with his life story and encouraging me to be all that I can be and all these things. And, and it was that moment for me that I decided, I think I just want to help people. I didn't know what it looked like, um, but I wanted to help people. So I think similar to your story, it's pretty incredible when you sit down and you take time and you build relationship and you get to know somebody, um, you get to hear their story, uh, where you actually then are able to humanize them. And I really do believe it can have a profound effect on our, on our everything. Absolutely. And, and I think part of the problem is we see someone that is in such a bad place and we know that they're in a bad place. And what we're not interested, we're interested in avoiding that. We're interested in doing something for someone to help them out in that moment. Um, but what we're not too concerned about is hearing their story. Um, to take a moment to uh, just listen and to be present and to hear who they are and what they have to say. And, you know, it, it just, it just helps recognize that any one of us could end up in exactly the same circumstance if our life had taken a slightly different path. And so I think, you know, I think we just need to recognize that more and more and more. It's interesting you say that. Because I, I, I often look at, uh, at UCAN Youth Services when we talk to our young people about relationship building and about conflict resolution, things like that. We use a, a thing called judgment, not judgment. So it's judge of the situation, not the person. And again, if you take time to talk to these people, um, I, I will almost guarantee you'll judge them less as a person and more of a, you know, you'll kind of judge the situation that they're in and try to sit back and look at how do they get there? How is there potentially, can they get out of that? But we do live in a society where we just think everything's fixable. And we think that we think that we have to fix everything and that people are fixable and that situations are fixable. Maybe let's talk a little bit about that, Dean. Last time you were in town, uh, we got together and you were talking to me about some of the, the, the needle exchange things that are happening in East Hastings and some of that stuff. And I was actually really blown away by, by some of the things that you were saying. Is this homelessness issue that, that I would suggest, uh, I, I don't have data on it, but I would suggest every community and especially the, the, the larger markets, uh, the larger cities in our country and really across the world, the, this issue that people deal with, is this fixable? Yeah, but it's not fixable in the way we think it is. Um, I think it, I think it's preventatively fixable. Um, meaning most people end up homeless or most people end up uh, with a significant addiction uh, just due to the trauma that they've had in their childhood and in their life. And when we start um, dealing with and start getting rid of trauma, that's, that's, that's when this issue becomes fixable. Uh, you know, there's other things you can do and I'm, and I'm not here to suggest that those things shouldn't happen. Like we clearly need more housing. But it isn't just it isn't just housing for housing's sake. Uh, you can't warehouse people that are you know dealing with significant issues or, around mental health and around addiction and around the trauma. You have to provide the supports, and you have to make sure those supports are intensive. Um, the other thing that most people don't recognize is that you know for some people they have been institutionalized outside. So you, you know it, they're actually uncomfortable being in a place. Uh, where they feel that they don't have the kind of freedom that they would outside. And so there's, there's just lots of work to do there. And it's, and it's not easy. In fact, it's very, very hard. 
Um, there needs to be, you know, a doubling down, tripling down, quadrupling down of investment into detox and into recovery and then to provide the supports for that. But at the end of the day, what we really, really need to do is solve the trauma that people are going through that leads them into these circumstances. So, and if I, if I can, I'll give you one example of what this means. Here at UGM, we have a women and family center um, that was opened up uh, about a year ago. So it predates me. I get no credit for anything that we're doing there, but it's incredible. So what, what happens there is you can be in this building for up to five years. And the reason for that, there's a Yale study that suggests that somebody that has been free of their addiction for five years is as likely to relapse as somebody who's never had an addiction is to enter into an addictive lifestyle. So we want to help people for five years. What can happen here is that if you're a woman who is struggling with addiction and you end up in the hospital um, to have your baby, um, you're pregnant, you're having your baby, and you have an active addiction, social services will come in and take your baby. Unless that woman chooses to come to UGM, then the baby can stay with mom. To the best of our knowledge, we're the only place in Canada where this is permissible. We know for sure we're the only place in British Columbia where this happens. So what we're trying to do here is break the cycle of trauma of women losing their child and of a child being taken from its mom. And the goal of that is to ensure that families can remain whole. The mantra of the staff that work there is simply this. We are here to support the child. We are here to support the mom, but we will never, ever shame the mom. We're here to just be a supportive presence so that she eventually can get to the place where she can care for her child independent of any help. That's what I mean by breaking trauma. I've never heard of anything like that. Um and obviously, if you are the only folks doing it in, in, in British Columbia, but probably across the country, that's why I haven't heard of anything like that. It truly is. Uh, it's, it, it's an incredible way to embrace mom and, and, like you say, try to break that cycle. So I'm assuming what happens is there's housing and there's programming for this. We'll call it a family for the mom and the child. Yep. Yep. How how long do they typically stay there? Uh, You know, we just opened in January, so can't answer that yet. Right. Uh, But it can be up to five years. So, I mean, there's there's two floors of transitional housing. Um, There is um, a floor that is for women that have a child that are going through uh, recovery. There's a floor for women without children that are going through recovery. Uh, There's a daycare on the top, top floor. It's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Uh, it's uh, licensed by the provincial government. Um, there's after school care in the building. So like, you know, and there's a school uh, within an elementary school within about four blocks uh, that, that wow. the kids walk to. So I see them walking every day to the school. Um, there's yeah. a youth program that's kicked in. Like it's it honestly, it's it's just an amazing program. But again, it's all it's, about it's a real wraparound. It's a it real is, wraparound. Service. It's totally wraparound. And the biggest thing, again, is breaking the cycle of trauma. So how right. do we continue to find ways to break the cycle of trauma? Cycle of trauma. I, I love the five-year part. And the reason being is you know and I know in this social services field, 
um, dealing with humans that are going through trauma, there is a high expectation on all of us to fix the problem. And here's your time frame. Let's go do it. Here's the amount of money you get. Fix the problem. It needs to be done. Um, and, and it's just not realistic. It's not realistic. And, and the biggest reason for me it's not realistic is because most people that, that we work with, let's say they come in at the age of 16 or 19 or 21, it's probably taken them 16 or 19 or 21 years to get to the point of where they're at. It potentially is going to take that long to get them out of the point of where they're at today. And obviously our hope is, is it can go faster. And truth be told, it usually is faster than that. We have seen some great success. We've seen some amazing things happen. But I honestly believe that it's just never enough time. So whenever I hear of a program like this where it's like, yeah, they can live there up for up to five years, that is just an incredible, incredible thing. And, and it's so intentional to me. And it's, it's just, it really is incredible. I was, I was looking at you guys before I came up. And I'm like, dude, there must be money in dirt because you guys look nice. Hey, folks, do you like to laugh? Who doesn't like to laugh? The You Can Comedy Nights are a ton of fun. And do they ever make you laugh? Listen, our next You Can Comedy Nights happen in March 2023. If you want all the details on how you can support our incredible organization, You Can Use Services, go to our website for more details. That is at youcancomedy.ca and you can find out all about our shows, our comedians, who's coming in, and all the ways that you can come out and support us. We look forward to having you there and uh, why don't you come and have some laughs supporting the serious work that we do at You Can Use Services. And now, back to the show. What are some of the other things, Dean, that UGM does? What are some of the other layers to this that, that, that maybe some of the programs you folks are doing that are you're seeing impact and, and you're seeing good things happen? For sure. So our men's recovery program uh, has been happening for decades, uh, you know, pretty high success rate. Uh, you know, we, we have graduations nearly monthly. Uh, that I get to go to. Uh, actually, we call them celebrations. Uh, they're the most, uh, uh, just, you know, another story. So the first one I go to was back in September, I think, and they, they actually asked me to to speak at it. And it, you feel a little weird. I've been on the job three weeks, but come speak at this celebration of, of recovery. And so I go speak at it. And I don't know what to expect afterwards. And um, these four gentlemen had um, come out of the program after six to nine months, and uh, we're now entering into the to the aftercare part of our program. And so, uh, at the end, uh, the president of the alumni gets up to talk, and so he's a gentleman that came out of the recovery program a couple years ago, and he says, "I just want to welcome you guys to the alumni. Congratulations on your success and completing the program." And now I want everybody in the room who has graduated from the program to come up and welcome you. And, um, you know, 10, 15, 20 guys all stood up out of nowhere. I had no idea that this was going to happen. And they all walked to the front and, and hug these men and say, welcome to the alumni where we got you. We support you. We love you. We're here for you. And it was the most moving thing um, that I could possibly witness. And again, you know, I've, I've said this a few times since I've gotten here. I can't believe I get to be part of this organization, much less be expected to lead it. Right. Um, you know, and, and so that's sort of at the heart of what we do. 
Uh, we have lots of other things. Um, we have shelter, we have uh, transitional housing, uh, we provide meals on a daily basis, uh, we do outreach work, we have outreach vans. Um, there's lots that we do. Um, but to me, the heart of what we do is helping somebody who has been on the street struggling with their addiction come to a place that they wanted to enter recovery, help them through that recovery. And then often at the end of that, um, you know, they'll end up, people end up working for us. Uh, we help them find job placements. We help them go back to school and we provide a continuum of care to ensure that they um, can sustain the recovery. That said, there's, there's lots of people that relapse. And sure. uh, when that happens, um, the answer is always the same. Is today the day you want to try again? Sure. It's, and it's, it, this is long-term. This is lifelong, yeah. right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Man, I love that story of, of alumni and where you didn't even know those, those fellows were sitting there. I love the idea of alumni and, and how they're all supporting one another afterwards. I'm actually thinking about how I can take that idea to UCAN Youth Services. We have so many young people that finish our programs that I think would just be great for our current young people to just talk to or lean on for support maybe. And, and no, I love this. I love this. I, I, that's an incredible story. And what a powerful moment, especially three weeks in. Right, like you're just, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, listen, earlier you you talked about pity, and yeah. you and I have talked a little bit about uh, pity versus compassion, and I, I think most people listening would would definitely, if they're honest with themselves, be able to admit that they've had pity for people, and that they've had yeah. pity. Um, and we don't want to slam pity. We don't want to make people feel bad if they had pity. But at the end of the day, I think I think a lot of people have looked at homeless people and just thought, okay, here's a little money, just get out. Like we we actually have a fear of of people on the streets. Um, I know in our community, there's there's many places where you know if you see a homeless person or what you assume is a homeless person or a street person, um, there's fear associated with that. And then there's pity. And this judgment that can come in. Um, talk like you know you talked a little bit earlier, but talk about a little bit more about the importance of that compassion piece, and and how can one uh, obtain compassion and then maintain compassion? Do you know what I mean? Like, how do we do that? Yeah, there's a few things. I think um, you know pity is closely connected to the word pitiful, and when you think of something being pitiful, you're, you're judging the circumstances or you're judging the individual, you're judging whatever's going on. And so pity comes with um, both sympathy, um, which is okay, but it also comes with uh, sympathy from a place of power and a place of feeling like you're in a, you're in a better spot. So you're looking down. Um, and so, you know, I've had that emotion. I still have that emotion at times. I, I know I have that emotion, but I, I would argue it's not it's not the healthiest of emotions when you look at people whose circumstances are very different. Um, compassion is, though. And compassion is that, that feeling not of um, I'm looking down on you, but compassion is seeing the potential in somebody and realizing that that potential isn't currently being fulfilled. Um, it is uh, being empathetic. It is um, being loving. Um, it is being present. And so 
you know, how does that, how does compassion uh, happen? Uh, I think compassion happens through uh, exposure, uh, through conversation, um, through getting to know somebody, um, through seeing their humanity rather than their circumstances. So I'll give you, a, you know, another kind of live example of this. I was just um, recently uh, on a trip uh, to go watch the Oilers play in, in Las Vegas. And my friend and I were hanging out on Fremont Street. If any of you have been down there, you, you kind of know that there's live bands that are situated on each corner of, of Fremont Street. So we were listening to one of the live bands and um, there was a gentleman who was laying on the ground and he was... Um, not in distress. He was actually trying to have a nap amongst all the chaos that was happening around him. And so like, you know, the live bands attract a big crowd yet. Uh, and it's usually pretty compact in there. This guy's right near the stage or close to the stage. And there is this incredible wide circle around him. Now the right, the, the wide circle exists for two reasons. One, um, people are trying to give him a space, but on the other hand is that people are also a little fearful or a little, uh, looking at him with a little bit of pity. And this wasn't just, you know, Americans uh, that were behaving this way. It was lots of people that were Edmonton Oilers fans. And you could tell that they were because they were in their jerseys. So, like, you know, and and yet, you know, we're, you, you could just see the look on people's eyes of just how pathetic is this individual. And so on one hand, they're, they're sympathetic. Uh, like that, that, it's terrible that this person's in this shape. But on the other hand, you know, there was just there was just a look of disdain a little bit too. So I went over talked to the dude, and I just said, "Hey, how you, how you doing? Like, are you all right?" You know, and and part of it was me actually just wanting to help him move along, so that way he was out of the eyeballs of you know, a lot of people that were staring at him. And sure. he said, hey, I'm, "I'm doing fine." And then he stands up now to talk to me which is interesting. The minute I go over there to say, hi, he stands up. He wants to chat. Our conversation lasts all of 20, maybe 30 seconds because somebody walks up to him in the middle of it and says to him, pull up your pants. Now his pants are hanging down low, but he had underwear on. He wasn't exposed. Uh, why does that person care that his pants are not pulled up as high as they should be? I have no idea. But this poor guy, that triggered him and he just, he came uncorked. And so there was, there wasn't a physical altercation, but these two guys start yelling at each other. And eventually the guy uh, grabs his stuff and carries on it. And that's the last I saw of him. The point being in that environment, in that circumstance, if it's you or me, when we see that person lying there, what do we see in that person? Um, do we see a person that needs value that needs love that needs worth that needs to be treated with dignity and kindness or do we need to see somebody who's in the way who i'm afraid of um who clearly i would one hand want to help but on the same hand um i don't i don't feel that my help would be worthwhile outside of maybe a meal or a couple bucks um do i see an addict or do I see somebody struggling with addiction? Um, do I see a person that is uh, homeless, a bum? Or do I see somebody that surely could use a place to call home? I think it's I think it's those attitude shifts that we need. 
it's a good it's a good way to look at it dean and and uh a good simple way in a lot of ways to explain pity versus compassion right is it a homeless person or somebody who could use a home that to me is the difference between pity and and we're not trying to guilt people here we're not trying to make people no. feel you know, we're not trying to shame anybody. Um, again, I believe that all of us have been through this, um, that, that, that have not experienced homelessness or that, that have not experienced that type of, of uh, even trauma in our lives. Um, um, all that being said, we also have to take into consideration sometimes about safety. You've talked to me about walking through the streets of East Hastings and mm-hmm. that it isn't, you know, you, you've said to me, you wouldn't walk down there by yourself at night, right? No, I would not. No, no. And, and I've done it uh, during the daytime, and I've done it at um, dusk. Uh, but I would not. I would not go down there. Uh, you know, at you know, whatever, eleven p.m., one in the morning, two in the morning, something like right. that. Absolutely not. And I no. think people have to be smart about that. They have to make sure that you know. I mean, for you to go and 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 interact with that gentleman in Vegas, different situation. There was you know a thousand people around. You just went to talk to the fellow, but but I think people have to be smart about it. Dean, how how can people get involved? Um, on on a meaningful level with with different organizations within their community. Um, I mean, you can speak yeah. about UGM, but at the end of the day, so many of these communities that have organizations such as UGM, they're always looking for volunteers. They're always looking for help. Um, money is great, right? Money is always good to be able to donate. But let's say somebody really wants to get involved and they want to they have that intentional interaction with folks. What, what does that look like? Yeah, well, I think the first thing you just said is important. Like, uh, hook yourself into an organization that does this work. Uh, you know, don't, um, I, I wouldn't recommend you go off and do this on your own for a lot of reasons. Um, right. but you know, honestly, the biggest reason is, is that you're not as an individual going to be able to help people beyond that moment, um, where the organization has probably got tons of wraparound supports. So if you come in as a volunteer and let's say, um, you know, it's, it's organization X and you're present at a meal time and you're sitting and you're having conversations with a person and somebody says, you know what, I'd really like to get into housing. I'd really like to find a place to live. Well, then there'll be a staff member that specializes in housing for these kinds of individuals. So it's, it's just it's just best to do it that way. Um, and the other thing is when you come as an individual to somebody and say, you know what, I cleaned out my closet today. I see you sleeping in a tent. Here's all my clothes. Uh, well, that really kind of gives the impression of a power differential of uh, coming coming down and doing something for somebody. So what I'd really recommend uh, to people, if they really truly want to make a difference, is find ways to do things with people, uh, to participate with people through an organization. So, uh, and, and here's what I mean by that. Four is really, really good. We, we do things for people all the time, and it's important. When you're hungry, you give someone a meal, you've done something for them. Um, if somebody, is, you know, in a place like Edmonton is walking around and it's minus 20 and they, they need a toque and you give them a toque, that's helpful. They need that toque or they're going to get frostbite. Uh, in Vancouver, uh, you know what? You need rain gear. You just absolutely need rain gear. So, you know, again, giving, giving somebody a poncho, giving somebody an umbrella is a good thing. However, four doesn't change anybody's life. It helps them in the moment, but it doesn't change their life. What transforms somebody's life is when you do something with somebody. 
that you are in solidarity with them. So the best example I can give you of this is this is, did not happen at the mustard seed, but a colleague of mine at the mustard seed told me this story of, with another organization that he worked with prior to coming to the mustard seed. There is this guy who'd been homeless for years and they finally move him. He finally moves into apartment. They give him an apartment and he's on like, I think it was the sixth or seventh floor for the first month he's in this apartment. He sleeps outside. He sleeps on his balcony uh, because he'd been so institutionalized to the indoors. So finally, or to the outdoors. So finally they get him inside and he's inside and they don't hear from him for a bit. Well, one day, um, all of his bedding comes off of his balcony. And uh, people are a little confused by that. So they come upstairs and they bring him back his bedding, knock on the door and say, hey, you can't, you can't be throwing things off the balcony. He goes, okay, sorry. And uh, a couple months later, his mattress comes flying off the balcony and nearly hits the maintenance man for the facility. And so uh, now they have a discussion. Do we evict him? He's throwing stuff off the balcony. Uh, do we lock his patio door so he can never open it again? Do we move him to the first floor? Right? There's all these litany of solutions. And then finally, somebody gets a smart idea and says, why don't we go ask him why he keeps throwing stuff off his balcony? Yeah, why don't we actually talk to him? Let's go talk to him. So they go and they go upstairs and they pound on the door. He opens the door and they said, hey, uh, you keep throwing stuff off your balcony. And we're just, you're not allowed to do that. Why, why are you throwing things off your balcony? answers with two words you came so he'd been living there for months the first time anybody knocked on the door was when he threw his bedding off the balcony the second time anybody talked to him was when he threw his mattress he was lonely yeah so they went oh so they went and got a volunteer and a couple of volunteers um, that would spend an hour with him every week while those volunteers quickly were no longer volunteers, they were friends. And nothing ever flew off the balcony again. How do you make a difference? Find an organization that will allow you to do things with somebody, not just for somebody. That's how you make a difference. That's interesting. It's a good concept. That being said, um, it is still good to do something for somebody. Yeah. Um, but I, I love this this idea of, of doing it with them if you are able and if you are comfortable. And I, I actually think even if you're uncomfortable, I'm a big believer that sometimes you need to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And most people in my life would be very uncomfortable going and sitting with a homeless person and building a relationship. Um, but I don't know. I think on behalf of Dean and myself, we challenge people to go and do that. <laughs> Go and see if you can make a difference. Uh, it's it's yeah. it's it's an incredible message, Dean Kirby White, and um, and I think if you're okay with it, unless you have anything else to add, I think we're going to end this part of the conversation on that. Are you okay Pretty with good. that, Dean? Thank you so much. Um, we will talk very soon. Uh, I appreciate again you being on the Relentless Podcast. And folks, if you want to learn more about You Can Use Services, by all means, go to our website at www.youcan.ca, which is Y O U C A N. And uh, and also out there, if you're listening 
uh, for sure check out your local organizations that are doing some of this incredible work um, supporting vulnerable people, whether it be at-risk youth or the homeless, uh, women's shelters, whatever that is. Um, thanks, Dean. I look forward to seeing you as soon as we can get together again. Sounds good. Thanks for having me.